if you are, um, this is your first time to RUF, I want to particularly welcome you and just tell you, um, hope you feel welcome, we hope you find this to be a safe place for you to figure out what you believe about Jesus and the Bible. Uh, what is RUF? We're basically a group of people that um, believe we're a bigger mess than we probably actually realize, but at the very same time, uh, we also believe that Jesus is better than we think. And so we have been doing a study this semester through the Ten Commandments. We normally alternate between books of the Bible or Old Testament and New Testament, and we're in the Old Testament, obviously, this semester doing a study through the Ten Commandments. Uh, And this uh, commandment that we're coming to tonight, uh, commandment number seven, uh, is very short, and, and you see some other passages mentioned on your announcement sheets. You can refer to those. I'm not going to read all of those. I'm just going to simply read the commandment, and I will refer to the others at some point, uh, probably uh, tonight during the message. And so let me um, read commandment 7, which is Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. This is God's holy and inspired word. You shall not commit adultery. Let me pray. And ask God to help us tonight with this passage. Father, we ask that you would come. Lots of things here at this point in the semester that are distracting to us. We um, maybe are not feeling well or run down or exhausted. Maybe we have lots of exams this week. Um, And I pray that you would come wherever we find ourselves and meet with us through this um, hard passage, another hard passage this week. And so would you come through your spirit and teach us? You tell us that your word is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in all righteousness. And so would you come and do that for us um, tonight and show us Jesus uh, in the midst of uh, this passage. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, one of the things we've been talking about this semester is in terms of the Ten Commandments is just kind of big picture. We want you to walk away this semester and uh, more than thinking about the commandments as an arbitrary religious code of conduct, which there's some truth to that, obviously, but they're way more than that and way better and way more beautiful than that. Uh, and so more than anything, we want you to walk away this semester uh, believing that the commandments are really God's gift to you. Uh, they're a way of God coming to you and saying, let me show you how life works best. Uh, let me show you, as Lewis says, the proper working of the human machine. And basically what we see in Scripture, and you probably see this in, even in your own life or around you, uh, you live by these Generally, life goes well for you and you're blessed. You violate your humanity and live and work against that. It normally ends up um, destroying you. It ends up leading to your destruction. And we could share countless examples of that reality. Um, And so tonight, one of the things I want us to get as we think about this tiny little commandment, uh, do not commit adultery, My prayer is that we would see the ocean of wisdom and the ocean of goodness that's behind this simple command. Uh, 
So much so that once we actually look at it and start to work it out, my hope is that you would start to understand yourself better and uh, maybe restore your sanity to some degrees, your sexual sanity, um, as you think about it. And maybe this will help you make sense of why your sexuality is such a huge deal to you and in your life. And so with that in mind, let's look at three things. Again, no outline, uh, but I'm going to give it to you now if you're a note taker. To help us understand why God gives us the seventh commandment, we need to understand the purpose of sexuality, the brokenness of sexuality, and thirdly and finally, the healing of our sexuality. And so the Ten Commandments really deal with these huge topics, right? Uh, If you've been coming, we've talked about idolatry and we've talked about the topic of rest and authority as it dealt with honoring your parents. We've talked about the topic of honoring life last week. Well, today, or tonight, we're talking about the topic of uh, sex. Uh, And so, if this is your first time to RUF, welcome. (laughs) We don't talk about this every week. That's just where we are uh, with the commandments, and we're just trying to be faithful to God's Word. So, uh, tonight's the topic of sexuality. Let's look at number one. The purpose of sexuality. So the Bible has a very, very high view of sex. Okay? But, and I think this is really important, the Bible doesn't say sex is everything. And I think that's important to say. In other words, the Bible doesn't worship sex. And it doesn't make an idol out of sex. And so the seventh commandment comes... And again, I think this is just good to say, um, this commandment uh, isn't any more important than any of the others, right? They're all important. And so messing up in this area, and some of you need to hear this, is not the thing that totally ruins your life and takes you down, as if the Bible says that purity is somehow the key to your happiness. Is purity good? Yes. I'm just trying to say... All of the commandments are important, but we tend to come and like elevate sex in our culture as if it's the biggest deal, and the Bible doesn't talk that way. The Bible never indicates uh, that if you never have sex and you're celibate for the rest of your life, the Bible doesn't say you're less of a person. The Bible never comes and says that marriage is the end goal in your life. So that if you're single for the rest of your life, you're somehow lacking something. A little bit of a sidebar, but I think, again, those are things that I wanted to say at some point to you tonight. But back to this idea of the purpose of sex. and The Bible talks about sex as being a really, really good thing. And I think that that is because God created it. God's given it to us as a gift. Honestly, I think that's pretty fairly, or that's fairly easy to establish from looking at the Bible. That the Bible has a positive view of sex. If you want to dive into that more, you can go back to a year ago. I did a dating series in this room, the fall of 2015, and it's in iTunes on our podcast. I'm not going to go into that in detail tonight. What I, I think that's easy to explain, though. What's not so easy to explain is why God has given us sex. And here's what I mean. If you don't get that, if you don't get the why, 
then I don't think you really would understand why the Bible has such a high view of sex. And just to state it from the beginning, when we're talking about sex, the, bi- the biblical sex ethic is sexual relationship is between a man and a woman in the context of a married relationship. And so what is the purposes, as the Bible lays out, why does uh, God give us sex? Well, let's look at three subpoints here, if you're a note-taker again. The first one, again, I think is obvious, but needs to be stated is clearly the Bible says that sex is for procreation. Look at Genesis chapters 1 and 2. God comes and says to Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply, um, and have children, fill the earth. And here's what I want you to consider, though. So if one of the purposes is procreation for sex then I want you to think about this and, and, and kind of uh, think about the implications of that. If that's one of the purposes, then do you see that uh, how sex outside of marriage actually mars the beauty of sex? If it's for procreation. Because that would actually deny its purpose. And here's what I mean. Everybody I know that has sex outside of marriage, nearly every one of them, no one wants to procreate. Am I right? No one is going into that saying that they want children. And think about that. If, if that's one of its purposes, and that's something that you are terrified of, then there's no way that you can convince me that you actually have a beautiful, beautiful view of sex. If the thing that is terrifying you and the thing that you are trying to prevent from happening is procreation, which is one of the purposes of having sex. Make sense? That's the first reason why God gives it, is to procreate. Secondly, God gives us sex for recreation. He gives it to us uh, for our enjoyment. And I, again, I can't go into possibly all of that tonight, but just read the Song of Solomon if you don't think that is true. It clearly talks about sexuality as something that's meant, that God has given us, that's meant to be enjoyed, fun, and exciting, and to bring you pleasure, again, in its proper context, which is marriage between a man and a woman. Thirdly, And I think the most profound reason that God gives us uh, sexuality, and and the one I want to spend the most time on, is for communication. Sex is for communication. And look at Genesis chapter 2. I think that passage is printed before you on the outline. And look at what it says. This is the first marriage, okay? Adam and Eve, and God actually officiates the first wedding. And he says that they, and the passage says that they are naked and unashamed and that they actually become one flesh. So I want you to see there, and I think it's easy to miss, see how the language intimately connects marriage with sex. And hang in here with me. Think about what marriage is. How does the Bible talk about marriage? Well, marriage is a covenant commitment to another person. It's a lifelong commitment between a male and female, and they bind themselves together in an unimaginable way, a way that's actually hard to pinpoint. 
And the Bible says that it is, they're so close and intimately related and connected that the only way the Bible knows how to describe that union is one flesh. And it says that they become one flesh, not just physically, but in every way, financially and emotionally and spiritually and, and of course, physically. You have absolutely, you're absolutely everything to the other person. And so sexual activity is a way of communicating something and saying something to your spouse, to the person that you're married to. What is it that you're communicating? Well, sex is a way of saying to the other person, I'm still here. Because you might not know this now, but when you get married, you will quickly realize that a thousand things happen during a given week that threaten the marriage relationship. Children, jobs, uh, your schedule, your own selfishness, all of those things compete and threaten the marriage relationship. And so God tells married people to come together in the marriage bed and to have sex because it is a way of looking at the other person and saying, I'm still here. I know what I said last week and I know I acted very selfishly and I know I treated you very terribly. But you know what? I'm still here. I am not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. I will be with you forever. See, that's what marriage, that's what sex actually communicates to your spouse. And so you can say whatever you want about the purpose of sex, but that doesn't change the purpose of sex. God determines the purpose of sex, and it just is, whether or not you think it is or not. So much so that the Apostle Paul says, and I got this printed for you as well, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 15 and 16, the Apostle Paul comes and he says, He who is joined with a prostitute becomes one body with her, for as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. Whoa! Man, that is a powerful statement. When you unite yourself to a prostitute, the two shall become one flesh. What is Paul talking about? Paul is talking, he's saying that sex with a prostitute is wrong, or anyone for that matter, because every sexual act is a uniting act. It is, Paul is basically saying, you think in your culture, and the same thing within his culture, it's no different in Corinth than it is today, but we put sex in one category, the physical And we compartmentalize it. And Paul says, no. It is way deeper than that. Any sexual act is holistic and you are uniting yourself, bonding yourself together with that person physically and emotionally and spiritually. You are becoming one flesh and one person with them. Here's an illustration. Think about superglue. If you've ever worked with superglue, I hate working with superglue. Because it holds together with such tenacity that it actually defies reason, doesn't it? If you get super glue on you, I promise you, your skin will come off before the glue comes off. And my point is this, I don't understand how super glue works. And you don't have to understand how it works in order for it to work. It just simply does. And in the same way, sex makes promises. 
And those promises are tied into the power and into the purpose of sex. And that you are bonding to another person. And like superglue, you don't have to understand it necessarily. And it might not, might not make sense to you, but it does. It just simply does. Secondly, the brokenness of sexuality. So this commandment actually, if we're looking broadly, it forbids anything, anything that would cheapen the beauty or the goodness of sex. And so any sexual activity, and remember these, these commandments as we've been looking at them this semester are all encompassing. You know, we don't get off the hook by saying, well, I'm not married, I haven't committed adultery, I'm good. No, they're way bigger than that. And so this commandment actually means that any sexual activity in our heart or in our mind or in our actions outside of marriage is forbidden. And likewise, anything inside of marriage that would degrade it or cheapen it or take away from the purpose and the goodness of sex is also forbidden. And so, obviously, the first and fullest expression of breaking this commandment is in the literal physical act of adultery in which you are sleeping with someone who is not your spouse. And I think you can probably quickly pick up on how that would destroy the beauty of sex because you're married, you're looking at your spouse and you're saying, I'm with you, I will never leave you, you belong to me, I have forsaken every other, I'm never leaving and then to go and to give yourself in that way to someone else, I think you can see how that would destroy and mar the goodness and the beauty of sex. But even more, and I think this is important, is when you look at the Bible and you wonder, why does the Bible treat and make such a big deal out of adultery? Well, one of the main reasons is because it's making a mockery out of Jesus and his church. We didn't get into this, but another purpose of sex, it's a signpost that actually when you are uniting with another person, it's actually pointing you to signposts that point you to the union that exists between the Lord Jesus Christ and his bride, the church, which is all believers. And so think about that. If Sex actually is a signpost that points to Jesus' unwavering and never-ending and never-stopping love for you and for his church. Think about that. Then what does adultery actually communicate? Well, it actually communicates that Jesus doesn't love you. And it communicates that Jesus' love is flimsy and ever-changing and very fickle. So what are some ways we see the brokenness of sex played out day to day in our lives? Again, there are three. And the first one is we see it with lust. In the Ten Commandments, I have that printed for you, Matthew chapter 5. It's easy for us to look at these commandments and think, I'm good. You know, I'm not married. How can I do, break this commandment? But then we get to the New Testament and Jesus has a showstopper, a game changer, because he comes in the Sermon on the Mount and says, wait a minute, it's way deeper than simply external behavior. I'm going to take this commandment all the way to your heart. And look at what Jesus says in Matthew 5 on your announcement sheet. 
Verse 27, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman or man, girls, with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, why in the world would Jesus say something like that? Well, because think about what happens when you lust. Think about what lust is. Let me first say what lust is not. Lust is different from finding someone attractive or acknowledging beauty. That's not lust. Lust, on the other hand, uses another person for your own personal gain and for your own personal pleasure. Lust looks at another person and renders them negotiable. Lust looks at another person and renders them disposable. And so now it starts to make sense why this commandment is actually after commandment number six. These aren't just randomly placed. Remember last week we talked about valuing life and treating people as someone created in the image of God? When you lust after someone, you are not treating them with dignity and with respect and as someone created with great dignity and whom has lots and lots of value. Instead, you're rendering them useless and disposable and negotiable. Okay? That's why it's a form of sexual brokenness. Pornography. And listen, I think we have got to stop thinking about pornography as solely a guy issue. It's not. I know, girls, many of you are struggling with pornography, and you feel like you can't talk about it. And I know that because, simply by looking at the statistics. And so we've got to quit just putting this as simply a guy's struggle. It's everyone. What is pornography? Well, think about it this way. Uh, pornography, it's where the work or the lust of fantasy has actually been done for you. And so you're not having to create it. It's been done for you and placed before you in the form of a visible picture or video. And it undermines all of the purposes of sex that we've talked about. And it undermines uh, the purposes of marriage. Because what pornography does in masturbation, it is inherently self-serving. It is selfish at its very heart. Because sex is intended to be about the other person's pleasure. It's intended to be about the other person. And pornography and masturbation, it's not about the other person. It's about you. Because love and marriage... And sexuality in the context of marriage says, me for you. Me for you. Pornography, on the other hand, says, you for me. I want to use you for my own selfish purposes. Because you see, in pornography, you always get what you want. And you always get it when you want. And it is not real. You see, at its heart, pornography is a false intimacy. And some of you are experiencing this now. And if you have not started to experience it, 
and you're addicted to pornography, there will come a day when you will start to experience it. But you are realizing, and I see this all the time, but pornography actually is damaging your ability to relate to real people. It's actually damaging, girls, your ability to relate to real men. And guys, it's, rela- it's damaging your ability to relate to a real woman. Why? Because relationships are hard work. Relationships involve sacrificial, sacrificially giving yourself to someone else. They involve forgiveness and generosity and kindness. And that's not what pornography and masturbation is. Third thing. Sex acts outside of marriage is another way we see this idea of sexual brokenness being played out. And this is where I want you to reach back into that first point and remember the purposes of sex. And one of the purposes is to bind you together and so that you can look at the other person and say, I will never leave you. And so if you think about the purpose of sex, this should make total sense. Because any sex act outside of marriage... Therefore, is an utter lie. Right? Because it cannot be anything else. Because sex is going to make promises when you engage in it that make you feel like this is good, we are secure. Because sex will come and say, I'm here for you. I will never leave you. I will never leave this relationship. And so it adds some sort of stability to the relationship. And that's often why you remain sexually active in a relationship even when you don't want to and you're trying to do better. It's because sex is actually keeping it together because you are so insecure. Why? Because the other person, if you're simply dating, can walk away at any moment, right? Because you don't have, you don't have a ring. You haven't stood before God and witnesses and made a covenant with them. Therefore, that person is free to walk away at any time. And oftentimes, we use sex in a relationship to add some security and to try to give it stability to keep that person close so that they don't walk away. But you know it's a lie. Because deep down in your heart, you feel that deep insecurity on the inside because you know there's nothing binding that person to you because you're not married. And that is why when you break up after you've been sexually active, it feels like a a divorce. It feels like your heart's been completely ripped out because you are making promises and have made promises with your body whether you wanted to or not. And so you see, that is why all of sexual acts outside of marriage are hurtful. Did you hear that? All sexual acts outside of marriage are hurtful. Notice I didn't say they didn't feel good. Or disappointed you, they, they probably don't. They probably feel great. I'm just saying they're deeply hurtful to you. And they're deeply hurtful to the other person because it's a lie. Because you're saying with your body, I'm committed. I'm all in. I will never leave you. I will be here forever. And you're not saying that with anything else in your life because you're not married. And therefore, it's a false sense of security. You get that? That's important to kind of help make sense of why the Bible talks about sex the way it does. Let me pause here. After saying all that, I want to say this. 
I know that there are people in this room that have had the beauty of sex taken from you and you didn't want to. And you didn't want it taken from you. Maybe you were abused as a, as a kid or as a, as a child. Maybe you've been raped. Maybe you've been raped on this campus. Or maybe you've been taken advantage of in some way that you did not want that to happen and you are in deep pain and you are full of shame and the awful part of that is you are feeling that pain for something that was not your fault. Friends, if that has happened to you, I want you to know I am very sorry. I am very sorry and I want you to know that God hates that. And that God enters in with you and he actually feels your pain and weeps with you. I love Psalm 56 says that Jesus keeps, or God keeps count of our tossings. And he actually takes all of our tears and he puts them in his bottle. I want to say this very clearly. And you need to hear me say this. It was not your fault. And I would love to talk to you about it. Uh, find someone else to talk to about it. And listen, I don't want to simplify this, but you need to hear me say that Christianity, only Christianity, offers you a God who hates evil, who hates brokenness, and who actually came in the world to do something about it. Who actually came into the world and was abused and taken advantage of so that he could finally heal the world and make all the sad things come untrue. And he promises to right every wrong when he returns and makes the world new. I don't know your story, but I know your story's not over. And I know Jesus wants to heal you and redeem you, and promises to redeem you. I don't know what it'll look like in your life, but I know that people want to walk through that with you, and more importantly, Jesus will walk through that with you. That leads to the last point, the healing of our sexuality. This will be quick. Um, I think the first thing that we need to do is we've got to start talking to one another. If we really believe what we say we believe, we talk about the grace and the goodness of God, then we need to start talking to one another about our sexual brokenness. And let me just say this. Matthew chapter 5, if you forgot that or weren't listening, that pretty much uh, takes the... That pretty much takes the cake, right? I mean, that shows us that everybody, everybody in this room is sexually broken in some way. That's the way the Bible talks about it. And so your campus minister stands in the front of the line as someone who is sexually broken and desperately needs Jesus in this area of his life. So let's just own that that we're all sexually broken. And maybe that will give us the courage to start talking to other people about it because there are people on this campus that need to talk because they are hurting so deeply. And so find someone to talk to. I'm not saying that you got to tell everyone, but find a friend or a pastor or someone uh, that your roommate, someone close to you, and talk to them about your same-sex struggles. 
Talk to them about your addiction to pornography. Talk to them about your bad habits uh, of dating and what tends to happen when you get in a dating relationship. This goes for all of us in this room, me included, but I think particularly I want to say a word to the girls because girls, in my experience of doing campus ministry, it's harder for you to be open about your sexual brokenness. And so I encourage you particularly to find someone to talk to. Secondly, though, the healing, and I know this sounds cliche, but run to Jesus. Don't run away. Let this drive you to Him. Because remember the Ten Commandments, remember last week, they're like a mirror that we are to look into. And when you look into a mirror, it shows you your flaws and maybe things that aren't so good. And you don't take the mirror off and start cleaning your face. The mirror actually pushes you to the water. And so let this commandment push you to the water, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, and let Him clean you. You can make all the purity vows you want. You can wear all the purity rings that you want. You can redouble your efforts on trying to deal with pornography and get in your accountability groups and pay $5 for every time you look at pornography this week. I'm not saying those are bad things, but you will never be healed unless you deal with the emptiness in your heart. You see, those are just dealing with the externals. You've got to deal with the heart because the Bible says every single person in this room wants to be known and wants to be loved and wanted. More than anything, as a human being, you want someone to know you all the way to the bottom and say, I want you. I want to be with you despite everything that I see. You want to be known, loved, and wanted. But yet that, is not, that often doesn't happen in our life because we are so full of shame and particularly in this area of sexuality. I don't know of anything that brings more shame to the surface than this because it goes so deep and it's so intertwined in who we are. And so really the question is, what do we do with our shame? And when the Bible talks about shame, it's very interesting. The Bible's word for shame is nakedness. And if you look at Matthew and the the Gospel of Matthew and Mark, and it looks, and you look at before the crucifixion, you will notice that they take Jesus' clothes off, and these writers make a specific point to tell you this, and he is stripped naked, and he is beaten almost to death before he goes and is crucified. Now, why in the world would the gospel writers want to bring up that detail in that memory? Why is that so important? Because, friends, what if... As Jesus was hanging on the cross, naked, by the way, and we try to romanticize the crucifixion and put a loincloth on him. No, 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 no. Go look. He was naked. Why was he naked? Well, what if he was bearing your shame in the midst of him taking all of the wrath of the Father for your sin? What if Jesus was bearing your shame so that you wouldn't have to? I'm going to close with this story. It's one of my favorite illustrations. Um, But it's a story from Matt Chandler. And Matt Chandler is a pastor in Dallas, Texas. And he tells about a time when he was in college ministry, when he was in college, and he was in class, and in walked a 26-year-old woman named Kim, who was a single mom. 
And so he and some of his friends try to be welcoming to her. She had no experience with the church, didn't know much about Jesus. And so they start befriending Kim. And some of Matt's friends were having a concert at a local church, kind of a worship event. And so Matt uh, invites Kim and says, I want you to come to this concert. Uh, and so she agrees to come. She'd never, again, been to anything like this. And after the concert, they're having a great time. And at some point, and Matt was not expecting this, the pastor gets up and says, tonight I want to talk to you about sex. And he immediately thought, this is not going to be good because I've got Kim, who is a single mom, has experienced sexual brokenness in her life. And who knows what this guy's going to say. And he said, sure enough, the guy starts off and the first thing he does is he pulls out this rose. And he holds up this rose and he says, see this rose? And he throws it out into the crowd. There's like 400 people here. And he says, pass it around. Take the rose. Smell the rose. Uh, Take it in. Enjoy the rose. And then as the the rose is being passed around, he proceeds, Matt Chandler says, to give one of the worst mishandlings of sexuality that he had ever heard. It was fear-based, it was shame-based, and he said he was so angry. And so his big ending, this pastor who's giving this talk, uh, is basically he stands up and says, where's my rose? Where's my rose? And so this guy in the back, again, 400 people, raises his hand and says, I've got the rose. And so the pastor, he says, come bring the rose to me. So this guy brings this rose up and he gives it to this guy and he holds it up. And you can imagine 400 people have touched this thing. The petals, there's no petals left. The stem is completely jacked up and broken in like five places. And his big ending was to hold up this rose. And he says, who would want this? And Chandler says it took everything in him not to completely tackle the guy and scream Jesus wants the rose Jesus wants the rose friends I think it's actually even better than that the gospel's even better than that because Jesus doesn't just want the rose he goes looking for the rose Jesus runs after the rose. Friends, Jesus pursues jacked up, messed up, sexually broken and dysfunctional people like me and you. He doesn't just want us. He goes looking for us. And friends, some of you don't believe that tonight. You think for sure that God is going to turn away. You think for sure that God is going to see your sexual brokenness and the mess that you've made of your sexuality and that he's going to hide his face from you and never turn towards you again. That is not Christianity. Remember, one of the things I want us to see over and over is that Christianity is good news. That's not good news. Good news is that that's not what God does. God draws near to you. He moves right into the center of your brokenness. And I don't think it gets much better than that. And so my question tonight is, will you come? Will you come and bring your sexual brokenness to Jesus and let Jesus heal you?
Let's pray.